Let's pray. Father, our goal for tonight is to encounter you. Uh, We invite you uh, as though you even need an invitation, but but we do acknowledge our, our need for you and our desire for you to meet with us in this place and to show us yourself uh, from your word. Lord, thank you for it. Thank you for the chance we have now to spend some time in it. I pray that uh, you'll draw our attention to what we need to see from here. And I pray that as we talk about it in small groups a little later, that uh, you will help us to have conversations that would uh, build us up in you. And for those that don't know you, that they might uh, come to know you as a result of talking through these things tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a common human experience to want to relive fond memories and, uh, and to remain in them. So, so I, it might be, and you can, you can think about what this might be like for you. Maybe you have, in your history, some, somewhat of a favorite moment, favorite event you've experienced, uh, favorite memory. So, so maybe it's a trip you've been on, maybe it's going to the beach, maybe it's a vacation, maybe it's, it's uh, you know, a mountaintop type experience, maybe it's a spiritual experience, maybe it was visiting with a uh, friend or a relative that you don't get to see very often, and so those times that you do get to spend with those people are rare, and so you, you cherish them, and you long for those things to happen more often. And to go back to them. Because in those moments, things seem perfect. They seem like paradise. And so we wish for those things to just be normal. To have those kinds of experiences all the time. And though our experiences might be different, those longings are are the same. All humans have longings like that. And for all humans, our greatest longings are really for the same thing. When humanity first was created, God took the first couple, Adam and Eve, and he gave them as their home, what? A garden in Eden, yeah. And, uh, and that garden was perfect. And for Adam and Eve, it was paradise. But their sin caused them to be exiled caused them to be sent away from the garden and, uh, and they could not get back to the garden on their own. And so ever since that happened, humans have been trying to recapture perfection, trying to get back to a perfect paradise with God, trying, trying to uh, experience Eden all over again. And that pattern of having paradise but then losing it and then trying to get it back, that's repeated all throughout the Bible. So think through some, some pretty uh, common or pretty uh, notable things in the Bible. So, so for example, Noah. When Noah spent some time on the ark to, uh, during the flood, when he got off the ark, what was the first thing that he, that he did? Do you know? He tried to build a, a garden. He tried to build uh, and, and live in like this new Eden Type place, but then you read that uh, Noah sinned in the garden, just like Adam had, and so he uh, he then his, the end of his life was sort of sort of stained. Um, 
Joshua led the Israelites out of the wilderness into the the promised land, and the Bible describes that land as very fruitful, very abundant, garden-like descriptions, a land flowing with milk and honey in its, in its abundance. Uh, King Solomon, when he built the temple, a lot of the, the features of the building of the temple were like the conditions in Eden. And each example is followed by some kind of exile, meaning that God's people, once they tried to recapture those experiences, uh, those experiences didn't last. They were sent out of, you know, Noah was sent out of his garden. Israel was sent out of the promised land. Uh, the kings were sent out of, their, out of the temple. Because humans always fail to return to God uh, and to God's perfect home. So, to have any hope of having an experience with God in paradise, are we able to achieve that on our own? What do we need? We need for God to come and rescue us and bring us to Him, don't we? So, so we've lost paradise, but can paradise be regained? Yes. yes, the good news is that it can. So last week in Isaiah chapter 1, uh, Isaiah introduced who the Lord is and who the Lord's children are. But what had, his, what had His children done? If you look back at Isaiah 1 and verse 2, His children had, they had sinned, yeah, they had rebelled. And so we looked at the rebellion of, of the uh, Lord's children. But then did God leave them in their rebellion? No, He called them, right? Called them back to Himself. He promised them that in the future they would live in a land where all the nations would come to a mountaintop and worship Him. And so our response should be, as we read about in, in Isaiah 2 and verse 5, is to walk in the... What does Isaiah 2, 5 say? Are you looking at it? Walk in the light. the light of the Lord. Yeah, and we talked about what that meant. So Isaiah chapter 2, and going all the way through verse 5, which we'll try to cover sort of quickly here, these chapters pick up the story, uh, and, and, they, and they retell uh, the story of, of chapter 1, and, they give more de- and he gives more detail in doing it. And there's three images that are given here. And these images are going to highlight... Our need for God to have mercy on us because of our rebellion. And how God has provided that mercy. And the images follow the the sequence that we just talked about of there being perfection in the garden and how it was lost and how it can be regained. So, here are the three images. Here's number one. Write this in your notes. The first image we see is of a deserted garden. Of a deserted garden. Because... Israel's rebellion as a nation was like Adam's. And so the consequences were also like what Adam experienced. So there's two sections here to this. And uh, there's some things to write down about these, about these sections. So the first section we'll talk about is, what did Isaiah observe about the Lord's people? What did Isaiah observe about the Lord's people that caused him to describe them like a deserted garden? And here's the first thing that Isaiah observed. So write this in. They ignored the true God. They ignored the true God. So let's read some of of how this happened. So look in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 6. And Isaiah says about the Lord and His people, He says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. 
And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. And they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So part of, part of Israel's uh, problem here, part of the way they pursued God was to try to replace God with what? What are some of the things listed here? Idols? Yep. Yep, chariots. So like military strength, that would be what that represents? Yeah. Horses, yeah, again, so horses to pull the chariots that, that provide the, the military strength. Good. Yeah, money. They're looking for wealth. Very good. So they're pursuing all these things, and they're not even, these aren't even things that are, that are in their own land. They're going to, it mentions, they're going to the east. They're going to the Philistines. Well, what do you know about the Philistines from other things we've read in Scripture? Philistines, good guys, bad guys? Bad guys. Horrible, right? Horrible people opposed to God, opposed to the people of God, and yet Israel is making deals with the Philistines to acquire wealth and to acquire strength and to acquire idols. So look at verse 9 to see what further Isaiah has to say that that all this means. He says in verse 9, So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Isaiah even says, Do not forgive them. He, He tells the people, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. So, so how does Isaiah think the Lord is going to respond to Israel's idolatry and pursuit of wealth? What's, what's God going to do? Yeah, He's going to bring punishment. He's going to seek to, to, as Isaiah says, not be forgiven and to destroy them. That's exactly right. To bring judgment. He says in verse 11... The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Uh, if you go down to um, verse uh, 17, some of, the, some of the exact same things are repeated for emphasis. Verse 17 the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. So if Israel's going to hold up idols... Uh, and God is going to come and oppose those idols, who's going to win that battle? God or the idols that oppose Him? The true God, right? And yet Israel had made the mistake of ignoring the true God and, and per- pursuing these, uh, these idols. But when the Lord comes and He punishes the people, that's when they'll realize that these idols were worthless and they were empty. So, so again, think about how this connects even to what we know about the Garden of Eden. When God put Adam and Eve in Eden... What were they allowed to worship in Eden? Only the one God who made them and put them there, right? So they weren't to worship. Any of the other good things in the garden were not to be their objects of worship. And yet, even in Eden, Adam and Eve ignored him. They rebelled against him. So I wonder how we might be guilty of ignoring God in our lives. And and Israel's main problem, it seems like they had a problem of pride, doesn't it? God continually saying, you were prideful, but now you will be humbled. 
and I, I look at my own life and I see my own struggle with pride. Probably there's areas of your life that if you think about it, you uh, tend to be prideful and you tend to ignore God and exalt other things. So it would be wise for us to kind of examine our lives and, and see where we also are guilty of this. The second observation that Isaiah makes is this, so you can write this down. They lacked a true king. They lacked a true king. So if you go to chapter 3, you can see what God has to say about this. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread, all support of water. But he's not just going to take away their food and drink. Look at verse 2. He's also going to take away the mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor and skillful magician, the expert in charms. So you know how, how Israel was trying to rack up uh, military strength? So horses and chariots. What's God going to do with those horses and chariots? Take them away. That's exactly right. Remove them from Israel. And when he does, look at verse 4. He says, uh, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. So were the men who were put into the position of king actually leading the people the way that God intended for them to do that? No, obviously not. And so, so Isaiah is saying, the Lord is saying through Isaiah, I'm going to remove those men and I'm going to put children in their place because they'll do about as good a job. And so maybe this is why you read in, in 2 Kings about people like Athaliah, who was a queen. Uh, there was a time where a woman ruled over Israel instead of a man because, again, the men were failing. Maybe it's also why you read about Joash, who, who was king at seven years old, and Josiah, who was king at eight years old. And, and those children did a better job of leading the people for the most part than a lot of the men did. So God is, is claiming that, that a lot of those kings had failed. And in fact, verse 6 kind of indicates that no one wants to be king in Israel. No one wants to rule. Look at verse 6. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, Well, you have a cloak. You should be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And in that day, he will speak out. So the other guy will respond saying, I don't want to be a healer. In my house, there's, there's no bread. There's no cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. So a man going to his brother, you be our king. And the brother saying, not a chance. I am not taking over this dump heap. Exactly. Verse 9 describes... Uh, their wickedness, verse 9, for the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. This is the second time, we actually saw this back in chapter 1. This is the second time where Israel is compared to Sodom. Well, what, what do you know about Sodom in the book of Genesis? Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities were... They, were, they got destroyed. Exactly. God's judgment came upon them because of their, because of their wickedness, all right? because of their immorality. And, and, and Isaiah apparently has a lot of the same wickedness in them. They are, they are proud of their sin. And so look at verse um, 13 in chapter 3. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with its elders with the elders and princes of his people. 
You see, the king should have done away with evil in the country, but he failed to do so, so now the Lord will take matter into his own hands because they lacked a true king. And then thirdly, here's a third observation, they needed a true husband. They needed a true husband. So, so the Lord even speaks against the women of the country. Look at verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and they, and they walk with outstretched necks. So they, the women even are walking in pride and acting pridefully. And so God would take away what made those women attractive. So you look, away, look at verse 18, and, and it says, In that day the Lord will take away... The finery of anklets, the headbands, crescents, pendants, bracelets, scarves, headdresses, armlets, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, signet rings, nose rings, feastal robes, mantles, cloaks, handbags, mirrors, linen garments, turbans, veils. I don't even know what all that is. But he's going to take it all away. And, and in verse 24 says, Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. No more guilty bags. Instead of, instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. So God would replace what made these women attractive. He would make them desperate. Look at, look at chapter 4, verse 1. This is how bad God says it's going to get for the women in that day. Seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We'll eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name and take away our reproach. So this was a reality for the women in that nation, but it also represents the situation of the, of the people as a whole and their covenant relationship to God. So, so in the garden, marriage was disruptive, disrupted. And marriage, by the way, was never meant to satisfy anyway. So if you're thinking that, that you'll have all your hopes and dreams fulfilled in a spouse one day, I would warn you to be very careful of putting that much pressure on another person because they can't hold it. They were never meant to. So Israel needed a true husband, just like these women were desperate for a man to take care of them because God was judging them for their action as well. And then the second part of, of this section here talks about the Lord's undoing of His creation. The Lord's undoing of His creation. So I'm going to read some of these verses. Actually, here's what I'd like to do. Um, I'll give some references, and then you read what's there and show me um, that, in, read to me, instead of a garden, they're going to have what we would think of as the opposite of garden-like conditions, okay? So, so for example, look at chapter 2 and verse 10. Chapter 2 and verse 10, instead of, instead of luscious trees and garden-like conditions, you have what? A rock and dust. Rocks and dust, yeah. What about in chapter, or what about in verse uh, 13 and 14? You read about what? cedars and oaks and mountains and hills. Well, those are all good things, right? Mm-hmm. But what's going to happen to them? Yeah, the Lord will lay waste to them. Go down to verse 19. Again, instead of people entering a garden, they're going to enter what? Caves and holes in the ground. They become hobbits, yeah. Verse, verse 21 says similarly, right? They're going to enter the caverns of rocks and the clefts of cliffs yeah chapter 3 verse 1 he's gonna we read this earlier he's gonna take away what all of their well he's the lord god of hosts but he's taking away from judah and jerusalem what 
supply of bread and water, so they won't even have any food. Uh, chapter or verse uh, verse six says that this place is a heap of ruins. Verse seven says there's no bread or cloak. Verse nine um, again says that they're like Sodom. Verse ten, they'll eat the fruit of their deeds. Well, were their deeds good? No. no so they're going to eat bad fruit. Uh, verse verse fourteen. It says, uh, this is interesting. He says, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. The vineyard. Yeah, we're reading chapter 5 about a vineyard. So, so instead of having a vineyard-like conditions, garden-like conditions, this has all been undone. Now, all of this seems really pretty hopeless for God's people, doesn't it? It's all very desperate. So how can there be any hope in a desperate situation like this? Well, this is where verse 2 comes along and tells us about number 2. A glorious branch. A glorious branch. Verse 2 says this, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Have you ever noticed, uh, if you, maybe if you've done any gardening or any, really just any kind of yard work, um, even when you cut down trees or you trim bushes, it, all, it almost always seems like there's some sort of wild branch, wild, um, uh, yeah, branch that just kind of shoots up out of what you've cut down. Has anybody ever experienced this? Okay, so you can cut down a whole tree, and yet a lot of times you'll see like a little sprout that'll spring up in a branch almost like a small tree in its place. Have you seen this? Yes. Okay, you should look this up. This is, this is a helpful illustration, I promise. And, uh, and, and so you'll read later in Isaiah, you'll read things like, Israel will be cut down with an axe, and like a tree it will fall. Well, that would make it seem like Israel's done for, right? Except what comes out of the stump? A branch. And this imagery is really important. Israel would be cut down, but a branch would sprout. And when it does, you can write this in, God's people will be fruitful. Because the branch is spoken of like it's a person. Why would the branch be spoken of like it's a person? Because it is a person. Yeah, this is God's representative coming to his people. And he will be beautiful and glorious, and when he does, the garden will flourish again, so that what was previously dead, now there will be fruit, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So this is like what, uh, what Bo read for us from Jeremiah 23, right? The Lord will raise up a branch who will do all of this. And, the, and Jeremiah actually says that the branch's name is righteousness. So God's people will be fruitful, Next, God's people will be cleansed from their sin. God's people will be cleansed from their sin and saved through judgment. Cleansed and saved. So verse 3, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. So once there was filth, now there is holiness and beauty. People are purified. 
And these two verses here give a good summary of the gospel, of what we as Christians hold to most closely. That we were created by God in His image, we were created good, but when we rebelled, we brought filth into our lives and into the world so that there needed to be a punishment for sin. But instead of having to bear the punishment of sin on our own, God provided a substitute, His Son, Jesus, who took the penalty of sin on Himself and died in our place so that we can be purchased by God and belong to Him again. So I would encourage you, maybe you've not thought about Christianity in those terms, uh, to, to consider, have, you been, have your sins been cleansed by God? Have you been purchased by God? And this branch also, when he comes, the third thing here, God's people will have God with them. They will have God with them. So here's how verse 5 describes that. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy and there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Well, this should sound really familiar. If God says he's going to dwell among his people in a cloud by day and fire by night, what would that remind them of? Yeah, the way that when the people were led by Moses in the wilderness, the way that God showed himself to his people. And his presence in the future will be even greater than that because it's going to be personal. So, so just like Will read for us in John 15, what we read along with him, that Jesus himself is a vine. He's this branch. And his people abide in him. And they bear fruit when they are attached to the branch. So God will be with his people personally. So the greatest longing that we have is for God himself and for his true presence, which, if you read the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, God says exactly that. I will dwell with them and they will be my people and I will be their God. Here's the third image. And chapter 5 tells us that, uh, gives us this image of a renewed vineyard. Of a renewed vineyard. So here, here's kind of how chapter 5 works. Chapter 5 is basically everything that was written in chapters 1 through 4 except put into the form of a song. So Isaiah has said it all in chapters 1 through 4, and he gets to chapter 5, he's like, now let's sing about it. And so he sings about it. And that's what chapter 5 is. And so, it, so, it's, a, so it's a parable. And the parable is this. You can write this in the blank there. The parable is that Israel is a vineyard of wild grapes. So you see that phrase there in verse, uh, at the end of verse 2. He looked for this vineyard. Okay, the vine dresser looked for this vineyard to yield grapes, but it yielded what? Wild grapes. Same thing there at the end of verse 4. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? What was Israel like? They were? What did you say? They were wild. Yeah, they were rebellious. They didn't fall in line with what God... Wanted. So now they're guilty and they need to be punished. Now, interestingly, when you get to the New Testament, who, who else tells parables like this? Jesus does, right? Comparing his people to a, uh, to a vineyard. Uh, 
and, and, and people who would uh, take care of the vineyard. So that's the parable. And, and the problems are explained this way. So, so why are God's people guilty? Well, here are the problems. First of all, they have pursued injustice. The problems are they have pursued injustice. Verses 8 through 10 especially talk about how, look at, look at verse 8. Uh, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there's no more room. They are exalting themselves over others instead of sharing their wealth. They're, trying, they're accumulating it and they're building mansions for themselves. So again, I think it's worth asking, what about us? Are we more concerned about having a comfortable lives, comfortable lives ourselves? Or do we seek to share what God has blessed us with for the good of others? So they pursued injustice. Next, they disregarded the Lord's works. Look at verse, uh, at ver- the end of verse 12. They do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. You and I tend to um, give ourselves too much credit, don't we? Like, look at what I've done. And very, very little do we say instead, look at what the Lord has done. And in that way, we are guilty like Israel. And then the third problem is that they've rejected the Lord's word. The beginning of verse 13 says, Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Verse, the end of verse 24. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So those are their problems. And punishment then will happen, right? And two, way, two uh, forms of punishment are described here. First of all, death will overtake the land. If you look at verse 14, Isaiah says, Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. Sheol is a, is a word that sometimes could just mean grave. So a place where people are buried, like the grave has swallowed them up. But a lot of times Sheol also represents hell. So it's showing the people that there's, there's not just death as punishment, but there's eternal punishment, eternal separation from God. So death will overtake the land. And then the second punishment is that foreign nations will overthrow the people. Foreign nations will overthrow the people. Verse uh, 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He stretched out His hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this His anger has not turned away, and His hand is still stretched out. And so He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly and speedily they come. The rest of that chapter describes that when they come, they're coming with arrows and swords and horses, and they are seizing the land. God is using His own people's enemies to accomplish His punishment. Now again, all this seems really disastrous, right? It seems like the vineyard is just tossed away and done with forever. But there's a couple of hints that show that this vineyard still has hope. Here's what they are. First of all, the Lord is holy. 
There's a promise that the Lord is holy and He will be exalted. Verse 16 makes that clear. The Lord of hosts is exalted in judgment and the holy God shows Himself holy in righteousness. How many of God's plans are accomplished? All of them, right? So, so none of this is out of God's control. God's plans are always accomplished. He is sovereign. Everything God does is right and good. So even when we are humbled, we can know that God is exalted. And the second promise that's hinted at here is this. The nations will know what kind of God He is. The nations will know. Think about it. God is inviting the nations to come and to judge His own people But eventually, based on what we read last week in Isaiah 2, what's going to happen to those nations? Eventually, they're going to come to the mountaintop where the Lord is and worship Him there, right? So this is why we emphasize missions so much. Because we know that God is calling all the nations to Himself. So so is God warning His people of judgment? Yes, He is. But when God warns of judgment, isn't that a merciful thing for Him to do? Mm-hmm. Like, isn't it kind of God to say, Hey, I, I need your attention to be on me so that you don't fall into this. That's an expression of God's mercy. So it might seem for you that your life is kind of like a garden that's been deserted or a vineyard that's been trampled. It might seem in a lot of ways that you don't have much hope of things uh, ending up well for you. So when you get into your groups tonight, uh, we want to help you to see that you can know the one who is the source of all hope. And you can know that this promise of paradise is coming for all of of God's people. So I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll break into groups. Pray with me. Father, again, we give you praise because of what we see here from your word. Lord, we, we see that you take sin very seriously, that sin is a, is a great offense to you because it, uh, it, it contrasts with your holy and perfect character. So Lord, you call us to be holy just as you are holy, but we need you to make us holy. And so we pray that you will. I pray our discussions tonight will help us to spur each other on toward holiness and toward obedience to you. So we pray you'll help us through that in Jesus' name. Amen.